And if you, if you have taken your phone and downloaded the app, would you hold your hand up in the air? Church Center. You guys can be dismissed. <laughs> Just kidding. You got to stay here and uh, and make note when you look when you look around. If you saw somebody who didn't have their hand up after church is over, your job is to go and peer pressure them <laughs> to download Church Center. Church Center is how you can find out about a lot of the things that are going on here at CBC. And you can sign up for stuff, see our calendar, check your kids in, even see a digital directory um, that you've got to be invited to be a part of. And so you've got to come and talk to me <laughs> for that. The price is high for getting into the digital directory. It is free if you, uh, if you come and talk to me. Um, but it's good to see you guys. We're here to worship God together. Um, and so I'm glad that you're with me for that. So let's, let's worship. And I 
desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night then through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul the work is finished the end is written Jesus Christ my boundless grace the God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame the cross has spoken I am forgiven the King of kings calls me
see your face in every sunrise the colors of the morning are inside your eyes the world awakens in the light of the day i look up to the sky and say you're beautiful Father, we love you today. We thank you for the time that we have to come together as a family, a family of your children, to learn from you, to be near you. We ask that you would draw us close, that you would teach us, that you would make us more like your son. We pray in his name. Amen. You guys can have a seat, and if you were one of our kids, K through 5, you can be dismissed to Sunshine Kids Club. Waypoints for the Journey is the title of this new sermon series that we're getting into. We're going to do eight weeks, and we're going to do eight weeks on vision, mission, and core values. Now, this is a process that we began as a church family about a year and a half ago. And it's involved many, many people, uh, some of you uh, more involved than others, but it literally has involved everybody. And uh, we got derailed by COVID, and we've come back to it, and now we want to uh, reveal the vision, mission, core values that we believe God is leading us into. And uh, we've called it Waypoints. Now, 
we could just look in scripture and use uh, the ones that God lines out for us, right? In other words, when we say vision, mission, core value, uh, I want to make sure you know that this is what we believe God has wanted us to do in a unique fashion here. We could look at scripture and say, well, the vision is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And the mission is to make disciples. Or we could say we are to love God and to love people. There are lots of biblical commands, biblical principles that we could follow, but we believe that God has given us something that is unique to our church, fresh for this season from his direction. And so that's what we're uh, unveiling in, in these next few weeks. And we're calling it Waypoints. Uh, a friend gave me this uh, uh, title and uh, it was new to me. Now, virtually everybody I've asked, it was not new to. So maybe you know what it is, but I didn't. It's basically a physical marker along a path that shows you where you are. So for centuries, longitude and latitude were on the map to show you where you were. Uh, of course, today we have GPS. Uh, it doesn't necessarily show you how to get somewhere, but it does show you where you're at and if you're tracking in the right way. So when we think about vision, mission, core values, we're thinking about what God has given us, and they will be our markers along the way. Since I didn't understand what it was, I came up with my own simple definition. If you've ever had a friend that just truly lived out in the country and they gave you directions to come visit them on the first time and you hoped it wasn't at night and they said something like this, I want you to go down this farm to market road and when you see the first road with gravel on it, turn left. And then I want you to go two, three, it might be four miles, but when you see an abandoned schoolhouse on the right, you know that we are the next street. You're gonna turn left on the next street. And then you're gonna go maybe a mile, maybe two miles, I can't remember. But you'll see this tree that's been struck by lightning. And, and after you see that tree struck by lightning, then we're the next driveway on the right. And we usually have a bandana on the fence post, so you should know where we are at. So these are waypoints. These are physical markers that let us know where we're at and if we're tracking on the right way. That's what vision, mission, core values will be for us. That's what we're going to do the next eight weeks. And today we're going to start with vision. Will you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can gather in your presence, that we can be connected to you by faith, and we thank you that you just pour your love into our hearts. And we thank you that your spirit is at work in us. We thank you for what you've given us. And we pray that you would give us not only an enthusiasm, but a joy in responding to you through it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Transform. Transformed. Transformation. Those words fill me with hope. They fill me with, they get me out of bed in the morning. I am what I am, just an imperfect human with lots of flaws and blind spots. I'd like to say that just those closest to me know, but I'm sure you guys could fill in the gaps. I am what I am, but here's the key. I am what I am, but I am not yet what I will be. That's transformation. And when we think about biblical transformation, transformation is just the process of becoming like Jesus. Becoming like Jesus. It comes from a root word, morpho, morph. We use that in English. You're familiar with one of the forms of the word, metamorphosis, where this creepy, crawly caterpillar becomes this beautiful floating butterfly. There's complete change there. The word morph literally means the, the real change of the essential nature of a person. And so when we see that becoming like Jesus, we know that we're declared righteous. We know that we possess every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And so this change that takes place is where our character and conduct begins to correspond to that. And we look like Jesus and we sound like Jesus and we're becoming the right sort of person because we're becoming like Jesus. Paul uses it in Galatians 4.19. He says, I labor, I work, I serve, I minister so that Christ might be formed in you. 
that you might morph, that your character and conduct might line up with who you are in Christ. In Romans 8, 29, he says that we are to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the work of God in us. That's the goal that he would conform us, that he would morph us, that he would change us into the very person of Jesus Christ. And then he turns that word around in Romans 12, and he says, don't be conformed to the world, this system that is against Christ, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be changed by Christ. Transformation is the process of becoming like Jesus Christ. And that's what we want in our lives. Transformation is a passive process because it is the power of the Holy Spirit that is at work in you and me to change us into Christ-likeness. Transformation is also an active process. Because it requires our cooperation. Where we respond to God's word with a loving obedience. And our motives are to honor and glorify him. Our desire is to obey him. And as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, he changes us. One degree of glory at a time. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We want to be people of transformation. Not only does transformation get me out of bed in the morning, it gets me to the office because I just love setting the table for transformation. Sometimes that's through teaching, preaching. Sometimes it's just through counsel. Sometimes it's a hallway conversation and bringing God's word to bear. Or perhaps an encouraging word, a note or a card. There are all kinds of ways to set the table for transformation, to point people to Jesus. You do that too. And that's exciting. Well, transformation is a key component in our vision statement. And this is what our vision statement is. To be a church family committed to seeing everyone transformed through the love of Christ. To be a church family committed to seeing everyone transformed through the love of Christ. And when we put that together, we also came up with a number of synonyms that you could put in there for committed to. You got to change a couple other words if you do it, but we could use the word intentional about seeing everyone or purposeful or deliberate. Serious about seeing everyone transformed through the love of Christ. If I was going to restate it, I would put it this way. And I think this will be on the screen. Everything we do is tied to the power of the Holy Spirit, making us more like Jesus. So that everyone will encounter his life-changing reality through us. That's how I would restate, to see everyone transformed through the love of Christ. That's what we want to be about. And I want to I tell you a story from Acts chapter 3 and 4 today. As we look at two men that I think lived out that vision in about a 24-hour period that we're given in these two chapters. The two men are Peter and John. They don't need any introduction. You know them as ex-fishermen, as disciples of Jesus Christ, part of his uh, 12, and not only that, but part of his inner circle, the three, Peter, James, and John. They were men of vision. And what we see in their life in, in this 24 hours, we see in three different scenes. And in each scene, we see that they are men who are committed to seeing everyone transformed through the love of Christ. So scene one starts in Acts 3. They are walking through Jerusalem and uh, heading what we would call through Old City, Old Jerusalem, uh, as they head east toward the Temple Mount. They're heading to the temple for the three o'clock prayer time. Now, they are followers of Jesus, but this is just a few weeks after the... Uh, birth of the church. This is just a couple of months after Jesus has ascended to heaven. I would put it somewhere probably mid-July. And so as they walk east, they're probably facing a hot breeze coming off of the, the, the baking desert out there. And they, they 
come across the last building or shop there in Jerusalem and, and they turn the corner and they see the temple. That incredible edifice, the second temple built where Solomon's was. 150 feet high at its highest point and massive. And they must have had chills because it's part of their heritage. It represented where God's presence was for his people. And they are headed there to pray. They're followers of Jesus, but they still hold to some of the disciplines that take place. And so they still go at three o'clock for prayer at the temple. Well, they walk up to the temple and they're going through a couple of the gates and, and the courts and, and they come to this gate called beautiful. And, and these guys, since they're committed to seeing everyone transformed through the love of Christ, they are sensitive to divine appointments, to whatever God might have for them. And, and they hear as they're walking up this beggar, this lame man who has been seated there. It's obvious he didn't get there on his own because his legs, his feet, his ankles are crippled. He cannot walk. He cannot stand. But they can hear him, and he's calling out to them specifically, and he's saying, hey, could I have a few cents? Could I have a few cents? And they turn, and Peter and John both say to him, look at us. Look at us. And so now he, he has a renewed focus. He's looking at them with anticipation. These guys, hopefully, are going to not have a cross word for him, but to give him something. And maybe, hopefully, they have even more for him. Maybe they have a, a new place for him to live. Maybe they have a way to supply him full time. And Peter says this to him. He says, silver and gold have I none. And I think he says that because he's looking at the gate called Beautiful. It was 75 feet high, 60 feet wide. These gates, of course, were wood. But this one was known for its brass fixtures that were shined up bright and shiny, and then beautiful silver and gold inlay and plating over the door. And I think it's because of that that Peter's mind goes to that term, silver and gold have I none. And it sounds a lot better than denarii have I none, right? But what I do have, I'll give to you. And there's a spiritual axiom there. That we can only give what we have. Peter's going to give him Jesus. And if we have Jesus, then we can give Jesus. And the other part of that axiom is that what we do have, we must give. We're not to hoard it. And so he, he invokes the power and presence of Jesus Christ. And he says, in the name of Jesus, walk. And the man's stunned. And so Peter reaches down and grabs his hand. And, and the man jumps up and stands He's completely healed. And as Luke often does in his Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, he, he has this physical event represent a spiritual event. This man who was helpless and lame and could not help himself was completely healed and could now walk. And this man who was helpless and rebellious and a sinner and could not save himself has been saved. And we see the evidence of that both ways. He stands up and walks, but he doesn't stop there. He starts running, and then we're told he's leaping about. Leaping and running, and I don't think it's too much of a, uh, to read into it and say he's probably doing cartwheels. He's over 40 years old. There are people in the temple that have probably seen him for days on end and weeks and months, maybe for decades. And they see this man that they knew was crippled, is leaping and running about. And his eyes are radiating joy and his mouth is praising God. That's what we're told in Acts chapter 3. And the people gather and they are filled with wonder and amazement, we are told in Acts chapter 3. Peter takes the opportunity because they're starting to gather around him, because we read that the lame man, now healed, is clinging to Peter and John. He doesn't want them to leave. I wouldn't either. And so they move out to Solomon's porch. That's the porch that ran on the east side of the temple, 
outside the court of Gentiles, but a beautiful place, full of steps, place where thousands could gather, place where Jesus had preached. It's got a nice cedar-lined ceiling that helps carry the voice. And so Peter began to preach. And he said, why are you guys so surprised? And why do you look at us as if we had some power or some piety, as if we were holy enough to do this? It wasn't us. It was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Do you remember Jesus Christ of Nazareth? He walked our land for about three and a half years. And, and you saw him do miracles. And you saw him heal people of de demons and disease and even raise people from the dead. You heard him teach with authority. He's the one that you disowned. You rejected him. You gave him to the rulers. And when they said, no, we don't see anything wrong here. We're going to release him. You said, no, give us a murderer. Give us Barabbas. Don't give us Jesus. And so he was killed. He was handed over to die. And God raised him from the dead. Peter is so committed to seeing everyone transformed through the love of Christ that he takes them right to the gospel. You know, when we think of the love of Christ, that might be a big spectrum for you. Because when we think of the love of Christ, we recognize that his love is poured into our hearts moment by moment. Paul tells us that in Romans 5. But the supreme display, the supreme manifestation of God's love is found on the cross, right? It's the heart of the gospel. Where he died on the cross for our sin and our place was buried and rose again victorious from sin and death. Paul put it this way in Romans 5. He said, but God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners while we were yet helpless to save ourselves Christ died for us he paid the penalty for our sin that's the supreme demonstration of love and so Peter moved by love sensitive to the divine appointment that God had willing to engage to encounter this lame man is now proclaiming the gospel and he says God raised him for the dead he is the one that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our God, anointed as Messiah. He is the one that God sent. And then he says this, repent, repent and return. God has blessed you by sending Jesus to turn from your wicked ways. Peter gives them the gospel and he gives them an invitation to turn their lives over to Jesus Christ. That's what happens in scene one. In Acts chapter 3, and we read at the beginning of Acts 4 that 2,000 more people came to Christ. They believed in Jesus that day. Isn't that incredible? It's all because two men were committed to seeing everyone transformed through the love of Christ. In this case, it was the marginalized. It was the least and the lost, and, and they were willing to go and to be used of God, to join God in his work. Scene two starts there in Solomon's porch. Peter is kind of caught. I don't get the idea that he's finished his sermon. If you look at the end of chapter three, he's saying great truth. And just all of a sudden it kind of stops because the Sadducees, one of the religious leading groups of the day in Israel, the teachers of Israel are angry. They're upset, and they get the temple police chief to come with them and arrest Peter and John as they're presenting the gospel, as they're talking to these thousands, as they're seeing a couple thousand come to Christ. And, and so there at the, chap at the beginning of chapter 4, the police chief arrests them for two things. They were teaching, and they were preaching the resurrection of Jesus. And that was a no-no, and that was late in the day. This didn't stop them with uh, Jesus from running trials anytime they wanted to, but it did this time. So they just threw Peter and John in jail and came and got them the next morning. And Peter and John came out. Whereas before they had encountered a lame man and they were somewhat in control as they submitted to the Lord, now they're engaging the opposition with grace and truth. They are standing before the Sanhedrin. It's a group of about 70. It's back at the temple complex. 
70 rulers and leaders. There's some more. There's a high priest and some former high priests. And just as intimidating and threatening a situation as you can imagine. Because they are engaged by the opposition. And these are the people who can make a ruling on life and death. These are the people who can say, you were teaching what was incorrect. And we're going to stone you for it. And so it's into this setting that Peter and John walk. But it's interesting. They don't cower. They don't get angry. They don't call these people names. Instead, they engage them with grace and truth. The next morning, the Sanhedrin brings out Peter and John, puts them in the middle, and they have one question for them. By what power or in what name have you done this? Have you healed this man? They brought in the healed man too. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, we're told, looks at him and he says, you know, basically, isn't it ironic that we're being interrogated for doing an act of kindness to this man? But he says, you want to know what power? It is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He walked our land for about three and a half years. And you knew him. You were threatened because he taught with authority. You were threatened because he had miracle after miracle. There were signs of his messiahship. He was the anointed one that God had sent. That he is the one that the prophets had talked about. And Peter, with truth, says, you crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. And then Peter, filled with grace, gives them the gospel. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven in which you can trust for salvation. And he's putting out a call for them to believe in Jesus right then. This threatening, intimidating situation that he engages with grace and truth. Why? Because he's committed to seeing everyone transformed through the love of Christ, friend or foe, lost and least, doesn't matter who it is. He wants to be used of God. And so he gives the gospel. Well, the Sanhedrin sends them out. They're kind of throwing up their hands or shrugging their shoulders. What are we going to do with these guys? And they begin to discuss it and they come up with this grand plan. I know we'll call them back in and we'll say, please don't do that anymore. I'm sure when they came up with that plan, the young guys in the back kind of chuckled and the old guys up front just kind of shook their heads. Is that the best we can do? And they did. They called them back in and they said, we don't want you teaching and we don't, certainly don't want you preaching resurrection about Jesus. And Peter, filled with grace and truth, willing to engage the opposition, said, hey, if it's right for us to obey God or to obey you, you be the judge. You decide. But here's the deal. We cannot stop talking about what we have seen and heard. This is incredible. We've been with Jesus. We saw him on the cross. We saw him buried. And now we saw him risen from the dead. And he still lives today. We can't stop talking about it. So the Sanhedrin threw out a few more threats and, and said, you know, we're going to come get you if you do it again. And they released him. And that was the end of scene two. We saw two men engaging the opposition with grace and truth because they were so committed to seeing everyone transformed through the love of Christ. Scene three begins immediately. They head back to their church family. Verse 23 of chapter 4, and, and they are now gathered together. And the first thing they do is to tell what God had done in them and what God had done through them. All glory to God. And so they began to praise God. And, and, and then they encouraged the church family with worship. They encouraged the church family to love and good works, to continue on. Here's what God is doing. And so a prayer meeting broke out. And the people began to praise God in prayer. And they, they grabbed some scripture from the Old Testament. 
And they tossed it back to God in praise. God, you are the God of creation. You are the God of power. And you gave these men boldness and power to do this. And they pulled out some of the promises of the Old Testament about God's plan of redemption. They say, God, this is what took place. You did this. They gave glory to God. They talked about how God had worked his plan of redemption against all opposition. And then they recognized that opposition was arising. And I don't know if they knew it at the time, but that was the root of persecution and opposition that would be gun then and carry all the way through the centuries to our own day. We haven't faced it the way they have in some countries around the world, but that train may be coming. So the people prayed. And it's interesting what they prayed. They didn't pray, God, give us comfort. God, take away these rulers. God, replace them with someone else. God, make it a way just for us to do our thing and let them do their thing. No, they, they said, God, give us boldness. Give us boldness. We want to be a people committed to seeing everyone transformed through the love of Christ. So give us boldness. That's what they prayed for. And Luke, who is known for giving little progress reports through the book of Acts, gives one in verse 31. And he says, when they had finished praying, the room where they were was shaken, a symbol of the power of God. They were filled with the Spirit. The Spirit was indwelling them from chapter 2, but now they were filled with the Spirit. And they went out and spoke the word of God with all boldness. That wasn't just two apostles that actually walked with Jesus doing that. This was the church family in Jerusalem. This was whoever they were gathered with that night of the larger church. Went out and spoke the word of God with all boldness. I think that we could say that Peter and John would agree with us that everything they did was tied to the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything they did was tied to the power of the Holy Spirit, making them more like Jesus so that everyone, the lost and the least, the opposition, their own church family, would encounter his life-changing reality through them. They were committed to that concept of seeing people transformed, hearing the gospel, and becoming more like Jesus. I think they have given us a narrative, a snapshot from their life of what it looks for us to carry like for us to carry out this vision. To be a people who are committed, serious, deliberate, purposeful, intentional about seeing everyone transformed. Transformation is a word that we often just think about for ourselves, right? Like the illustration I used at the beginning of the message. But transformation is not just for us, and it's not just for people out there to know the love of Christ. It's also within the church family, everyone, to know the love of Christ, to encounter Jesus Christ through us. And that's our vision. That's what we want to see pull us forward. And I want you to dream with it. But I want to, I want to look at just a, a handful of elements real quickly that I think come out of this passage. Just elements about vision that we kind of learn about this and what does vision require. Let me, let me give you five. You might come up with more. You may disagree with some of them. But the first one is that vision requires boldness in our lives. It requires confidence. We must live boldly, and that means we must rely on God because it's his power in us and through us. We must have confidence when we go out. And the early church grasped that need, and they prayed like crazy for boldness. Vision requires change. We're moving into the unknown. And, and meaningful change draws us into a deeper allegiance with Jesus. 
Now, you may have thought I would have said, well, here's what we're going to do. Here are the steps and here's what it's going to look like. But meaningful change, the most meaningful change we can have is, is to be drawn into deeper allegiance to Jesus Christ. Because when we are focused on him and walking with him, then we will be doing whatever he wants. And whoever encounters us in this world will be encountering Jesus Christ. Vision requires the new definition of success. When we came out with this vision, mission, core values, our desire is not to have the biggest church in Montgomery County. It's not to have the best programs and all of that. Hopefully things result out of that. But we don't want to measure success with attendance, with money, with best programs. We, we want to measure it by people becoming more like Jesus. We want to measure it by a church family that is willing to go out in boldness into our county. A church county, a church family that is willing and committed to seeing everyone transformed. To join God in his work. Vision requires overcoming obstacles. They engaged opposition there. Everything we do in the name of Jesus We'll face spiritual warfare. We will face opposition no matter what it is. And that's why it takes confidence in Christ. That's why it takes boldness in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we want to have our allegiance set on him and not on the world system around us, which is constantly shifting and constantly causing doubt and constantly causing us to move away from what God would have us do. Vision requires overcoming obstacles. And finally, Vision requires an adventurous spirit. It requires knowing that the journey, the process of becoming more like Jesus as a church family, Ephesians 4, 16, is as important as the ultimate destination. And that as we go along and, and the Lord shifts our emphasis here and there, brings new insights, new ideas, that we are committed to this vision and that we can do it in his strength and in his power. We can be devoted to seeing people transformed through the love of Christ. Because that's the vision that he has given us. What was the key element for Peter and John? in having this vision to see everyone transformed? Well, it's because they were transformed. When we look at Ephesians 4, 13, this is right after Peter had given the gospel. Sanhedrin is trying to decide, how are we going to handle this? And this is what they say, the, the, the members of the Sanhedrin now, as they observed the confidence, the boldness of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were ignorant. They hadn't been to rabbi school. These religious leaders were amazed and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. They could have only gotten that from the Lord himself. What would they know about recognizing them as having been with Jesus? You see, Peter and, James, Peter and John had been transformed, and they were being transformed. When, when, when they say have been with Jesus, that doesn't refer just to the three and a half years that they walked the earth with Jesus Christ. No, he has ascended into heaven, and they still by faith walk with him. They are being transformed, and in the process, he is giving them boldness and confidence. Even the Sanhedrin noticed that because this is a very threatening and intimidating environment and we didn't seem to have any effect on these guys. Can you imagine that in your life? When you and I go out, we recognize intellectually all the time, biblically all the time, that it's extremely important to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what do we do with it? We just kind of keep it in our back pocket, hoping that someday somebody's going to come up to me and, and say, what must I do to be saved? And we'll give it to them. But Jesus wants us committed to seeing everyone transformed through the love of Christ. He wants us reaching out, willing to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, certainly starting with 
love and kindness and gentleness. But he wants us to be a people that are willing to move toward the gospel, willing to bring up spiritual conversations. That's where he wants us. And when we look at Peter and John in their transformation, we know that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were submissive to the Spirit and let him control them. We saw that mentioned a couple of times. They were active in their community. The end of chapter 2 gives those five core experiences of every New Testament church from the early church to now. Worship, instruction of the apostles, fellowship or community, evangelism, stewardship or service. Those five things that have been going on forever. They were active in that. And so when they came out, they also had their community behind them, encouraging them to love and good works. They were disciplined in prayer. They were even heading to the temple for the three o'clock prayer time. And they were living, learning and living God's word. There are many allusions to scripture in these two chapters. Speaking of the prophets and, and different aspects of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there are also seven direct quotes of the Old Testament from the law and from the prophets and from the Psalms. These guys knew God's word and God's word had gotten through them and begun to transform them and change them. And that added to the boldness. You and I need that because vision requires boldness in our lives. They loved boldly. Because they brought the power and presence of Jesus with them wherever they went. Well, fertile vision, vision is fertile ground for dreams. And so I would like for you to take this and start dreaming as to what God might do here to grab hold of it. I've got a few dreams I'll share with you just to start stirring your heart and mind. And certainly the first one is that I dream of a church family with the courage to pursue Jesus completely, wholeheartedly. To go to God in prayer and pray for boldness, that we might stick to his vision, that we might live out his vision. I dream of bold hallway conversations that go beyond just the litany of financial woes and health woes and into heart issues, into helping people see what God is doing in their lives, bringing scripture to bear on them, praying for them, asking what we can do to help. That happened to me twice this morning before ABF. Maybe the dream's fulfilled. But I dream that way because we can get so locked into our circumstances and so distracted from our walk with Jesus by what is going on in our lives. And we need each other to see it from the perspective of what God is doing in our lives and what he's doing for us. I dream of households and relationships that are filled with love, joy, peace, instead of flashes of anger and underlying anxieties. I dream of households and relationships that are filled with goodness and gentleness and kindness instead of harsh words and selfishness. I dream of households and relationships that are filled with patience and faithfulness and self-control instead of impulsive actions and spending. I dream of us reaching the marginalized and the lost and the least. And, and I want to tell you a dream that, that I've had the last three or four months as we've been praying through things like this. And as I've been looking, especially at what our local missions team is doing, what Brent is doing with uh, good citizens of Montgomery County. Uh, I dream of a pavilion out here on our land that has a full-size basketball court and, and people just come hang out and we hang out with them and build relationships and share the gospel. And, and certainly it gets used by the church family, but I, I dream of a compassion center there where there's maybe a storage place for drop-off. But here's what I see going on. As I talk to ministries in, the, in Montgomery County, we have so many parachurch ministries and we have so many doing such a great job, but they're all just individual silos. And maybe we could be that ministry that draws it all together, that networks all the resources and helps people find exactly the ministry that they need to serve God in or the ministry that they need to be served by. 
Perhaps we could staff it. Perhaps counseling could take place out there. I dream of us having an impact in the county with the least and the lost. I dream of us becoming a people like Jesus that look at people with his eyes and are committed like his eyes were. When we were told in Luke 9 that his face was like flint and he turned his eyes toward Jerusalem, that we are committed to the vision of seeing people transformed through the love of Christ. Everything we do is going to be tied to the power of the Holy Spirit making us more like Jesus so that everyone will encounter his life-changing reality through us. Want to join us? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for your guidance through this process. Thank you for the numbers of people that have been involved. Thank you for your deep love for us. And we thank you that even when we think about being bold in following you and carrying out your vision, that you are the one who supplies the strength, the security, the significance that we can just look to you and be given all that we need. And we pray that you would train us up that way. Thank you that in our imperfect ways, you continue to pull us forward. You continue to love on us. You continue to shape us through the Holy Spirit into your likeness. That's what we want. We want to follow you with boldness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.
Christ be the center of our lives, be the place we fix our eyes, be the center of our lives. You're the center of the universe, everything was made in
Amen. Thank you guys for being with us today. Have a good week. Turn the lights back on. Do you feel the world is broken?